they will publicly demonstrate their adulation for Trump and privately express their dismay. I will join those in the chorus who say that these people are cowards and that they are really helping dismantle our political structure and our society if they continue to do that. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Jerry Tyson, runs a company called the Tyson Organization that specializes in the use of phones in politics, something that has changed a great deal from when he got started in the business in the 1970s, but persists as one of the mediums where humans can connect with each other. I really enjoyed catching up with Jerry and hearing his story, how he built his firm, and how he's feeling about politics after so many years of service. You should listen. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Jerry Tyson of the Tyson Organization. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Jerry, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? I'm Jerry Tyson. I'm the founder and president of the Tyson Organization, which is a Fort Worth-based voter contact firm. I went into business on my own in 1983. So like you, I am literally one of the gray beards in this business. The company has worked for clients from the White House to the courthouse, to the outhouse, as you might say over more than 40 years doing telephone-based programs, persuasion ID, GOTV, volunteer solicitation, and so forth. We've done quite a few blind surveys for pollsters and for people who are involved in modeling data analytics. So we've run the gamut. And you've probably seen an awful lot of change just in the world of phones in those decades. I was thinking about that this morning as we approached doing this interview. When I first started out in the business working for someone else, the way we would set up a phone program would be, I would go to the location where the campaign existed, such as Los Angeles. And I would literally set up a phone operation from scratch find the space, rent the furniture, get the phones, interview and hire and manage callers. It was a very rudimentary, fundamental boiler room operation. We operated that way for a number of years. It was about 1992 when I last did that kind of on-site phone program. The transition was made in 1994 to a hybrid where we use that sort of 
on-site phone bank, plus hiring call centers to do the calls. I was a little bit uncomfortable with hiring call centers where I had no hands-on management ability. But as it turned out, it worked and the costs were much less. We could do more for the client. So the on-site phone bank was abandoned forever. I'm a little unaware of how important phones still are with campaigns. I know that a lot of people are texting people's mobile phones, but is the telephone call still an important part of campaigning? I think any part of politics which requires interpersonal communication between the voter and some surrogate of the campaign is a far more effective way of communication than anything else. Someone told me the other day, well, uh, live calls have been uh, morphed into texting. Well, we do texting when asked. We don't promote it. And we find that uh, responses to text messaging is very low, maybe 10%. You don't get usable answers. You You really don't have interpersonal communication with the person who's receiving the text. There is still some resistance by cell phone users to click on a link to go somewhere else. But I will say this, those who are doing texting well can bring a wealth of information to the voter if they'll simply click on that link. Because I've seen some good ones. I've seen some bad ones. On the other hand, live calls, we're still able to reach, I would say somewhere between 35 and 50% of the audience that we dial, depending upon the phone number match and other factors. But it's still a much more flexible way to communicate with voters. And you have that interpersonal relationship that you can't get in any other way except door to door. So we remain with door to door and live phone calls as the only interpersonal uh, communication devices. I want to go back and learn a little bit about how you went down this path. Where did you grow up? Fort Worth. Were your parents political? What was the source of your interest in politics? My mother was a school teacher, always a teacher, not just in the classroom, in the car, in the kitchen. Uh, Okay. And she was, let me say this, my father died when I was 12. And so my mother raised uh, two teenage boys as a school teacher, but she was always active in civic affairs, League of Women Voters, TSTA, Texas State Teachers Association, the uh, Association of University Women and so forth. So I had this genetic and reinforced interest in public affairs. When I was eight years old and we were living at Fort Sam Houston, which is in San Antonio, I watched the Democratic and Republican conventions on TV. That's the first time they were ever televised. But I sat next door in Colonel Thayer's office and we watched the entirety of those conventions. So even at the age of eight, I was interested in politics and public affairs. When I went to college at TCU, I first majored in international affairs, but discovered that learning two languages was a challenge that I could not meet. So I went into political science and public administration with the intent of becoming a city manager. I worked for the city of Fort Worth for five years, the last three as a budget analyst. 
and was sort of discouraged by the career path that city managers have to pursue. It's kind of like an itinerant minister in the countryside. But a friend of mine who had been a state representative and for whom I had done some door-to-door polling came to me with the idea that he would like to hire me and send me to Houston to work in a mayor's race, which meant setting up the phone bank, as I described earlier. I did that. And from then on, I was in the political telecommunications business. I spent 12 years with that guy, Hugh Palmer, who was ultimately a mayor of Fort Worth and then a state senator. And then I went out on my own in 1983 and have pursued that path, focused on phone communication. A lot of people in this business go into other areas. I didn't. Well, tell me about working for Parmer and what you learned during that stage. Wow. How much time do you have? It sounds like you learned a lot. Well, humility was one thing I, I hope I learned a little bit of. But Nathaniel, it's hard to say. I learned a lot about how you can affect voter attitudes, how you can measure voter attitudes, how you can target voters. We really started a hybrid polling operation during the 1970s where we would send interviewers door to door, very expensive, not particularly reliable. And at some point in the early 70s, I said, Parmer, why don't we try doing this on the telephone? And he said, you know, I'm not so sure what kind of information we would get compared to to what we get at the door when we interview someone. So we came up with the idea of doing parallel surveys. We randomly picked interview points, used phone and field door to door, analyzed the results and discovered that the outcomes paralleled each other with a couple of exceptions. Name recognition would be one and a person's volunteered negatives about a candidate being the other. So from then on, we abandoned the door-to-door and went solely with phone. About that time, Peter Hart went solely with phone too. But learning how to measure and use voter attitudes was one of the main things I learned from Hugh Palmer. Do you think he ran a good shop, was good at what he did? Probably as good as anyone. When we initially did all of these things in Houston and other parts of Texas, we were competing mainly with Matt Reese. Matt invented the block captain program. We stole it from Matt and at one point beat him with it. I think there were three voter contact firms, Palmer Marketing, Matt's firm, and Bill Hamilton did voter contact before he did polling. So there were three of us out there in the 70s competing for business in a democratic market. I wish it were the same. A few more now? There are a few more now, uh, maybe a hundred. I don't know how many there are, but there, there are a few good phone firms out there, two of which I spawned. It was an interesting business then. In some ways, not having to go on site creates a disconnect. I got to know the candidates and the players when I would go on site. And now that's not necessarily the case. Occasionally I'll go on site, but I just don't make a habit of it anymore. How big was the Palmer operation over the time you were there? Well, there was a Palmer and there was me. And occasionally we would hire people, had stringers, shall we call them, in various places where we would put them in charge of phone banks, but never more than 
oh, a half dozen at one time. It was a pretty lean operation. What made you interested enough in that as a profession to go start your own firm as opposed to tackling something else in politics or something outside of politics? In part, you go with what you know, and you're always trying to learn more about what you do. And in pursuing that rather focused objective, I never really had the desire to branch out and do anything else. Also, offering multiple services can create some conflicts. The only time I was tempted to do anything else was when I had an opportunity to be a general consultant on a congressional campaign in Alabama. And what I discovered through that effort was that being a general consultant is very difficult and has very little return on investment. So I abandoned that and just continued to focus on improving phone programs. Tell me about the move out of Parmer's operation and starting your own. What was your world like then? Was it scary to go out on your own? Did it take, did you have to take clients from him? Was it conflictual, the break? How did that go? He had just been elected to the state Senate. Okay. Part of the relationship with him would have been to work part-time as a Senate staffer and part-time to continue the the, uh, political business through Parmer Marketing. And I was uncomfortable with that arrangement. And we had a point where we knew things weren't going to work out, but I didn't want to just leave abruptly. So I went out, got a client that I could bring back to him, ran the program, and then left. Not a complete break, but sort of a partial adios type of break. Yes, it was scary, but I had enough savings and enough relationships that I'd built over the years to feel confident that I could make it work, and it did. It took a couple of years for me to be comfortable with being on my own, but it worked out. When you thought about running your own business, did you have the idea that you wanted to be sort of a growth business that got bigger each year, or did you want it to be sort of stable and profitable and kind of operate successfully at the same size, or did you go through different phases on that? I don't recall being consciously desirous of expanding the business. But I think in any enterprise, the growth is going to happen naturally unless you don't want it to. So as I got more clients, there would be more inquiries about services. At one point, we had to simply tell a client that there was a minimum amount that he or she would need to spend with us in order for us to do the program. We liked the small animals because we know that many of them grow into large animals, but at the same time, you can be overwhelmed by small animals. So we limited the growth that way. There was never any plan for growth. I guess, Nathaniel, I'm not a guy who plans ahead very well. I take (laughs) life one day at a time. I don't think I ever had any broad plan to be king of the hill or anything like that. On the other hand, I do think that through our natural growth process, we 
at one time probably were the premier Democratic uh, voter contact firm. When would you say that was? 2002 to 2009. Along the way, were there key clients that you felt like pretty darn excited that you landed them and got to be part of something bigger than yourself there? Working with the DNC in 1996 on the Clinton campaign was one of those moments, I think. But we were working with the DNC's general consultant, so we weren't really hands-on with the Clinton campaign. On the other hand, in 2008, we worked with the Obama campaign, a very extensive micro-targeting effort where we did all the field interviews. Ken Strasma and others did the, the targeting at the national field level. I don't know how many different interviews we might have done, but we were feeding them to them daily, and we felt as if our efforts were instrumental in enabling the Obama campaign to come up with winning tactics and strategy. That's got to be pretty fun. It was fun, and it was very profitable. And it led to doing Michael Bloomberg's re-election campaign in New York in 2009, where, again, working with Ken Strasma, we were doing daily interviews, you know, surveys of various types. Probably Michael Bloomberg had Ken build more models than the Obama campaign did. It was amazing, all the, the different surveys that we did. Tell me a little about the business as it changed from when you started it to now. Did you at some times have a lot more employees or a lot fewer employees? Did the mix of clients change? Did the services change? What's the trajectory there? Starting with block captains and block captains only, moving into Persuasion ID and GOTV, being a lone wolf operator in 1983, expanding to as many as 10 or 12 employees by 2008. I say spawning another firm, but in 2009, three of my principals went on their own and formed a firm, which is... Was that JD? and that's JD and it's yeah. AMM Political Strategies. They have remained top of the market. I don't track what they do, but they pop up every once in a while. And I, I know they're successful and I know they're good. And then in 2011, I spawned another firm, which is known as InFocus Campaigns. They aren't as active as AMM, but they too are very good. It's pretty common for political consultancies, pollsters, media firms to have capable people that go on and start their own firms, kind of like you did, actually, to some extent. Was it painful for you to have those two come out of your tutelage and, and go out into the market? Oh, sure, sure. But you get over it. You recognize that there's probably nothing that could have been done to keep that from happening. Eventually, it was going to happen one way or the other. It's not crying over spilled milk or anything like that. And I only spawned two. Bill Hamilton, you may recall, seemed to spawn a spinoff once a week back in the 80s. But yes, people come together and they go apart and they create new teams. It's almost like a, a colony of amoeba, right? Yeah, that's a pretty good image as you 
let your tendrils go out in different directions and yeah. then disengage from the main amoeba, I guess. And, yeah. Yep. Today, I have no idea how many firms there are out there that offer the services that we do. I have no idea what the market looks like anymore because there are so many firms. I don't know where the growth area is in the industry. It's not media. We know that. That's probably shrunk. I think direct mail lives. What we do lives, but the social media seems to be the growth area. Yeah. Are you happy with where you are right now and how your business is running? I could be a little bit busier, but at the same time, Nathaniel, I enjoy the time that I'm not having to, to deal with clients. I'm very close to saying I'm ready to retire. In fact, I've set 2024 as a goal for being the last year that I do this. When you think about retiring after all of those decades doing this, do you think about, I should sell this business? Is there something of value left there to do that? Do you think about just shutting it down? I, I don't think there's, there's really anything of value to sell. That's one of the things that we went through in the mid-2000s, how to sell the business to J.D. and, and Jennifer and Danae. I went through a lot of discussions with attorneys and accountants about how you set that up. I don't know whether it was a case of my inability to come up with a way to do that or an unwillingness to do it. Sometimes inability and unwillingness are so intertwined that you can't determine which is which. Yeah. So probably I could have come up with a way to sell it then so we wouldn't have gone through the catharsis that 2008-9 brought. But I think the outcome would have been the same down the line. Well, it's called the Tyson Organization. Right. And that is somewhat related to Jerry Tyson. And I think it's just extremely hard. I've been through it myself. I think it's very hard to disentangle your identity from the practice of running a business that you've been doing for that long. And that is really part and parcel of who you are. Yeah. I see NGP labeled on horses and everything. I didn't know it was on horses. Yeah. Yeah. There are brands on horses, flanks now. They're you know, race horses, NGP race horses. You bet. Oh, NGP racing. Yeah. I think I've seen that on vans. I don't believe that's the same NGP as my initials, but I do take note when I see that. It's a pretty good example of bad naming of a company when you name it after your initials, I'm told, but I couldn't really? come up with a better idea. <laughs> <laughs> and I couldn't come up with a better idea than the Tyson organization. But I like the sound of Tyson organization. I remember when I first came to my attention, there's something about like, although now you got Trump organization that well, kind see. of put a bit of a blight on, on, on the name. But yeah, I, I think uh, the Gallup organization is what sort of spawned the idea of, of that name. It feels substantial somehow. Well, and we were doing political organization, so it sort of matched. Yeah, it's a brand that has been around for a long time. Nathaniel, we may have the longest living brand in of any political consultancy. Yeah, could be. I think you should keep it going. Then I don't think you should retire. <laughs> I mean, you could squeeze a couple more decades out of that. A couple of more decades. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll check with my actuaries on that. Okay. <laughs> well. When you're talking about people like Matt Reese, you're talking about early political consultants, people who 
only historians of American politics know some of these names of people who came up in the 60s and 70s. Tell me about how you see sort of the profession of political consulting evolving over time from your viewpoint. When uh, I started in the business, there were just a handful. The Matt Reese's, Bill Hamilton's, Ray Strothers, Bob Squire, people like that. And they all got into it because they loved politics and public affairs and wanted to be able to impact things in what they felt would be a positive fashion. These were the graybeards of our business, and there were just a handful. I think today, people who get into the business don't do it for the same reasons. I think there certainly is an interest in public affairs, but it's more profit-driven than, than anything else, I believe. Do you think that's true? When I talk to young political consultants, by and large, they seem extremely driven by the mission of electing Democrats, if that's what they're doing. Maybe they're more sophisticated in business than uh, when I was young, but I don't know that it's the business that most people go after if their main aim is money. There are categories of consultancies that are more lucrative than others. You may be right, and I may simply be cynical. I guess it probably varies a bit by who we're talking about. Most people seem to be staffers who worked some campaigns and then saw like a natural evolution to, let's take the service or the expertise that I've developed working for one campaign and let's sell it to 20. That seems like the route that a lot of people take. A few people do it by being hired into a consultancy as their first job and then learning the business basically like you did. And then, and then think, okay, I've been 10 years at this media firm and I think I can do just as well as the boss or better. What are you seeing that's making you feel like it's more profit driven? Because maybe I'm missing that. What I have seen in recent years is consulting firms who sell particular types of services, offering campaign managers commissions if they will use that service in the campaign. That maybe clouds the judgment in theory of the campaign manager. So rather than picking their someone they think does good work, they're picking them because they can line their pockets a little more. Well, yeah. It's kind of like uh, if you have a medical condition and go to see a surgeon, he's going to recommend surgery. That's why I say I think it's more money-driven than ideology. Everyone's got to make a living. Yes. When you think about your own motivations for running the business, what got you up each day to do it again? I mean, running a business is not easy. It doesn't lack for stress. Clients can be wonderful and less so. What kept you going and staying for so long with what you've done? I can tell you that in 1994, I hated getting up every day in September and October. I prayed that I would wake up and it would be the day after election day. And that was because I had too many clients and was working with some newfound call centers whose competence I questioned. I was discovering that data that, that came to me was faulty. That's when I decided that if I was going to continue in the business, 
I'd have to bring someone else aboard to help shoulder the load and the grief. After I got through through 94, 95, and was able to see the light, then I would say that I, I woke up every morning with the anticipation of either continuing to, to serve clients on a day-to-day basis with the programs or reaching out to other prospects. And it was a positive outlook rather than the negative outlook that I had in, in 1994. It was really survival mode at that point. That's the only time that I've ever felt that way about the business. If you don't feel like you're doing the best job, maybe for reasons out of your control, it's far less satisfying than if you're confident that you're really providing value. There's panic, Mm -hmm. panic involved. Panic is is a good and a poor motivator Mm -hmm. simultaneously. What do you mean by that? Well, panic motivates you to find a solution to something. Mm -hmm. Okay. But it's also very unhealthy. Emotionally. Definitely. It can be a positive motivator. How much was the partisan combat a motivator for you? Because you worked for one side. How much did that drive you? That's always been a a motivator. It has become more so in recent years. At one time, I think we all hated but respected the other side in most cases. Now, there's little respect left. The Texas Democrats that you came of age with are very different than the Democrats now. And the Texas Republicans, just thinking of your state, are enormously different. Yes. What have you observed in that change? Well, there there were times early in my career when when I would say there was very little difference between uh, George H.W. Bush and Lloyd Benson, for example. Today, the chasm between Greg Abbott and any Democrat is so large that it's unimaginable that there would be an undecided voter anywhere in the state. How do you think that chasm developed? What do you think is the cause of that? Greed. How so? In Texas, it's the fossil fuel industry. You think they've driven the Republicans to the right? I think they funded the Republicans to the right. There's no question about that. Mm -hmm. West Texas oil men are funding all sorts of right-wing activities, including, Nathaniel, at the local level. School boards and such. School boards, yeah, school boards, especially in Tarrant County around Fort Worth. There have been school boards that have been overtaken by right-wing zealots who have been funded mostly by West Texas oil money. Here in Tarrant County, we were beginning to to move from red to purple and perhaps blue in some cases. And lo and behold, we now have a very conservative right-wing zealot as the county judge, which in Texas is like being the county executive, the person who presides over the county commission. And he's brought others along with him. And they they came out of the group in Northeast Tarrant County that overthrew school boards. Do you find all this discouraging or do you maintain some optimism? It depends on the day, Nathaniel. It depends <laughs> on the day. It was discouraging to me at filing deadline that we were unable as Democrats to come up with 
what I would consider to be a strong candidate for sheriff, for example. Our sheriff is part of the right-wing cabal. We had an opportunity here to come up with a, a strong opponent, and we didn't. That's discouraging. Have you ever thought about running for office yourself? Huh. Well, many, many years ago, you'll love this. Many years ago, I thought, you know, I might run for office, but I think it would be something tame like school board. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's where you get in the crosshairs today. Yeah. I've, I've helped elect a lot of school board members over the years, and it's a thankless task now for anyone to take on that. They get a lot of incoming. Yeah. It's yeah. terrible. It's terrible. It's And because it's so local, yeah. it's a lot harder to find candidates who can put up with the punishment. You can have people walking their neighborhood and getting yelled at now. Yeah. yeah. Or shot. Oh, my God. Tell me about how you saw the rise of Trump as a national candidate in 2015 and and through to his win in 2016. What did you see? Did you think he was going to be successful? Did you worry about what he's become? I thought his candidacy was partial, just like lots of people did. I think for a long time, the Clinton campaign had the same outlook, that, that Trump was a farce, that he was an anomaly, that there's no way in the world that a person like that could be elected. And so we're all guilty of, of taking lightly the attitudes that he was able to manipulate in the electorate. So he's gone from a farce to a force of evil that strikes fear in the hearts of all of us who love our country. That sounds pretty dramatic, but I think yeah, there's a lot of people share that feeling. Do you think he parallels at all the Southern governors of the George Wallace era, the pro-segregation governors that were often very showy? You had that on both sides to some degree. Populist governors from North Carolina around to Mississippi. No. I think that Trump is delusional and the people you're referring to were calculating. I think Trump started out calculating and became delusional. George Wallace is, is a good example. You mentioned him. He was a district judge, ran for office and got defeated because he was not a, a high level segregationist. And he said at the time that he would never be out segregated again. He put it a little more. He, he put uh, it crudely. Yes. But um, in 1982, I worked for the Alabama Democratic Party. George Wallace was running for governor. He had effectively been forgiven by the African-American community, Democratic community in Alabama. He'd made apologies. He made apologies. Yeah. This is, he, he was in his wheelchair then. Mm -hmm. He'd been shot. Yeah. His perspective was totally different. And what we did in the Democratic Party there was come up with the moniker of the Alabama Democratic family, where we posed all of the candidates of both races in all the mailings and such that went out. It helped demonstrate the forgiveness across the, the racial lines. It was very helpful in <laughs> reelecting George Wallace as governor 
of Alabama. Kind of a remarkable story. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. When you think about Texas and Trump, the leading Republican politicians in Texas, by and large, have come on board with him. The electorate on the Republican side has. Could you understand why that would be? Given what seemed to us to be so manifest flaws in this fella. Well, obviously, the the elected officials and Republican candidates are scared of the electorate. They are more scared of the uh, primary electorate than they are the general electorate. But they understand that the process is one step at a time. They will publicly demonstrate their adulation for Trump and privately express their dismay. I will join those in the chorus who say that these people are cowards and that they are really helping dismantle our political structure and our society if they continue to do that. If they're afraid of the electorate, then they're recognizing that the electorate, some portion of it, likes him. Why does the electorate like Trump to the extent that they do? Can't tell you that, man. I can't get inside their heads. I wish I could. It's a mystery to me. I I have neighbors who are well-educated. I don't want to prejudice this, and yet I've got to say it. In most cases, the people who are Trumpsters tend to be more religious. He's not religious. He's not religious, right. I don't understand the connection. These are people who are very intelligent. What is it about a strong religious faith that can entertain an affection for Trump and what he's all about? I don't understand it. Do you? I think I partially understand it. I think it varies by person, but it is certainly a very different lens than I'm accustomed to. When you're a phone consultant, my sense is that it's a less strategic part of the campaign than the pollster or the media consultant in the sense of being in the room for decisions about message and things like that. Maybe not always the case, but often. Did you ever feel an envy of that or wanting to be more of a strategic consultant besides the your little foray into being a general consultant that you didn't seem to like? Well, it would be nice to have a seat at the table when decisions are made on how to spend the money. Yes, that's the bottom line of all of this. As far as strategic input goes, there's a lot that I could offer if I were given the opportunity to sit at the table and make the arguments. Frankly, I don't want to do it that way. I'd rather just take the results of what they come up with and run with it. Why? You've been watching politics rather closely for a bunch of years, and you probably know some things that the 28-year-olds or 32-year-olds don't. You have a longer perspective on it. Do you sometimes find yourself irritated by the direction of the campaigns you work with or thinking that they're making mistakes? Or are you generally feeling like, well, actually, these people have skills in this area and I'm good? Campaigns these days, and I guess forever, have been consensus decision-making businesses. No one really drives it. Yes, I'm, for the most part, satisfied with the outcomes of their deliberations. I find endless conference calls where strategic alternatives and such are supposed to be discussed. I try to avoid the conference calls from now on because they're so tedious. 
I think I would, I might feel that way too. I think most of us do. And so why do we have these conference calls? I don't think I've ever been on one. So I, I have a little bit of curiosity about what they sound like. And I've thought about like asking a consultant to record some and, and like play them back a year later. And so that people could be educated about what happens in the room. But I don't know whether that would be disappointing or educational. You have to go through a lot of them to find the points that you would want to use to educate because they are just mostly very deadening. In too many cases, the participants want to pontificate. When you think about the consultants that you've worked with over the years, are there any that stand out to you as really skilled or admirable? Oh, yeah, there are many of them. I thought Raymond Strother was one of the most uh, brilliant strategists that I've ever encountered. Pollsters, awfully good. One that I worked with most closely and probably is not as well known as many as a guy named Jim Kitchens, who's in Florida. I worked with Jim for a couple of years at Parmer Marketing, and then he went out on his own. But he's very strategic and to the point and not at all fancy. A lot of pollsters, in my opinion, are esoteric in their approach to things. Uh, Jim is straightforward. I mentioned Strother, a direct mail. Um, you know, I interviewed Dane Strother on this podcast. Did you? Okay. Yeah. I'll have to listen to that. Dane carries on the, the legend of the Strothers. He's very good at things. You were about to say, talk about mail, or I think. There are a lot of great mail consultants out there. The dean of the business, I believe, was Hal Malchow, who's now largely retired and writing books. Jordan. Yes, I've been actually just had him on talking about his latest book. I've had interviewed him a few times. He still seems very concerned with it, even in retirement and trying to still change the Democratic Party and how it does business. My first recollection of Hal was when he was a campaign manager for Al Gore in 1984. Another one of those guys from Mississippi who has done so well in national politics. But the thing that I think he contributed most value to was his outlook on analytics and the measurement of various forms of communication and their impact on their audience. Right. He has that key book on micro-targeting, which is yep. part of putting that forward into the space. Yep. And he was one of the founders of the Analyst Institute, which is housed at AFL-CIO. I still uh, get uh, all of their reports, and it's very interesting to, to read the impact. I recently interviewed one of the professors that Don Green. Yeah, Donald Green at Yale. Mm -hmm. Yep. Who? Well, he's now at Columbia, but he was at Yale for 22 years. A scientific study of Get Out the Vote. How much did that affect your business as that came on the scene? Uh, using the findings is very important. Uh, social pressure, visualizing the act of voting, things like that, that uh, came out of his studies. In fact, we participated in some of the studies that the Analyst Institute did that measured those kinds of things. Yeah, Donald Green has been a, a major contributor to uh, what we do in our business. Another guy who's less well-known named Casey Klofstad. I ran across his doctoral dissertation that he did at Harvard, where he discussed peer communication. We've known for forever, it seems, that peers talking to peers is the most effective form of political communication. He looked into it more closely 
in his dissertation and then continued to do it through a series of, of books and collaborations with other academics. So that's another one to look into. You might want to interview Casey Klofstad. I will pursue that. What have I not asked you that I should have about your work or your career? I think you've been pretty thorough. That's the most common adjective I get at the end of an interview. I'm not sure how much of a compliment it is, but I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> You're not prosecuting, which uh, we appreciate when you interview us. You're being thorough, though, in, in asking questions. I'm curious. And having run into you when I was very young in the industry, I'm really glad to have the chance to catch up with you now and see what time has created in you and your business. There are two of you who I met when you were basically working out of shoeboxes with stuff. Out of my attic. Out of your attic. And you were... You were working on campaign finance, and at some point you worked with Dolly McClary on putting together some management software, as I recall. Are you talking about Dolly Engel? Yeah. yeah. I say yeah. McClary because when I met her, she was Dolly McClary. That, there's a good story. Uh, she was working in Houston, and I worked in some campaigns down there. And in 1978 or 77, Martin Frost said, I don't want to lose another congressional campaign. Can you recommend a, a manager? And I said, there's this woman in Houston named Dolly McClary. She's fiery redhead and really knows her stuff. And I think you ought to talk to her, which he did. And history was made and she became Martin's longtime chief of staff. But you and Dolly were doing things. And I've watched you evolve over the years into so many successes. Similarly, Charlie Cook in the early 80s was literally working out of a shoebox where he kept cards of people who might subscribe to his newsletter. And now he's evolved into, well, he's retired. <laughs> but he became like the name guy in analysis of elections. And and the name remains. Yes. The name remains. But uh, you guys have both been successful and it's been wonderful to watch your evolution. Well, Dolly, what she did for me that was quite pivotal was she knew the world of democratic political fundraising and fundraisers. Oh yeah. And so she introduced me to what were my earliest clients that needed a better way of managing lists for fundraising. They were often like word perfect labels coming out and not and not a relational database. And so I I went in and and cleaned that up a little bit. Oh, it's been a while since I've run across her. I hope she's doing well. I haven't uh, seen her in 10 years. Well, Jerry, anything else you want to say? Well, I, I would say that it's uh, good to see you again. Uh, it's been a number of years. I appreciate the opportunity to uh, answer questions. I hope it's helpful to your audience. I think people who are interested in the space will be interested in, in your part of it. And I, I certainly was. So thank you for taking the time. Well, thank you. And I'm going to listen to more of your podcasts. I've done one and that was, he was Gary Morrow's campaign manager. Both of his parents were Billy very, Rogers. Billy yeah. Rogers. Yeah. Hadn't seen anything about Billy in 15 years. So it was good to, to hear all of what he had to say. You mentioned the analytics person who. Ken Strasma. Yep. So there's an interview with Strasma. 
You have done one? Yep. Uh, back in 2018, okay. the role of predictive analytics in modern campaigns, Ken Strasma. I think he's the godfather. He's certainly one of the early practitioners. For yeah, sure. we did a project with him. The first one we did with him was in 2005 in the mayor's race in L.A., where we did a, a uh, support model for the, the incumbent mayor. It sort of worked and sort of didn't. When you think about support models now, where are you drawing them from? Are you getting them from analytics firms? Are you getting them from Catalyst? Are you doing them on your own? What's the current state of the art? We still like to do them on our own using Ken to do all the science. I see. I've recently tried to persuade clients that if they will allow us to do a project that will score the entire electorate, then using those scores, we can evaluate the efficacy of the campaign itself because we can look at the stratifications and, and the volumes within them. It's a hard sell, man. It really is a hard sell. And maybe it's because I don't sell it well, but. I think campaigns get into certain grooves, consultants do, and it's hard to move them to do it a different way than they just did it the last race. If they were successful, yeah. Yeah. yeah, why reinvent the wheel? Thank you very much for taking the time. My pleasure. That was Jerry Tyson. He is at Tyson.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.